0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, here's a question that I get a lot of from people out there. How effective are the COVID-19 vaccines against these variant strains of the virus that we're now hearing about in Canada? Well the opposition in Ottawa is also asking that question and on Friday morning they're going to be making their case for a full briefing from Health Canada officials on this topic so joining us to unpack what we know about this right now is Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beam and hi Abigail
0: Oh, good morning. Sorry, do you have me now? <laughs> yes, I've got you there. Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, so in terms of this emergency meeting that the Conservatives are calling for Friday morning, they want to get a better understanding of both how these variants, as you say, are impacted by the vaccine or how the how effective the vaccine is uh, at dealing with these variants, but also more information on what the government plans to do about that uh, and what steps the government is taking if they're not as effective. How does that impact the government's vaccine strategy?
1: Okay, so then, I mean, those are questions that I think people have right across the country. So, is Health Canada going to be briefing the politicians on this?
0: Uh, it's an interesting question. So they're, they're not actually asking for Health Canada officials specifically so far in the letter that the Conservatives have put forward. Although, of course, that may change, uh, when the meeting comes about. So far, they're asking for the head of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. That's, uh, Dr. Carolyn Quash-Tan to come and present to the committee to answer these questions. But we don't know whether that will happen because a motion needs to pass first in order to, to call her to testify, uh, and then it goes from there. So we'll have to wait wait and see Friday to see you know exactly how the motion carries out do other members of the committee want to change it will they vote in favor all of those uh things that come along with being part of a political committee but that's the call out right now uh to get her to testify to provide some answers
1: okay so are these answers like has the federal government has the prime minister been talking about this at all
0: Yeah, that's a good question and I would say sort of Um, you know, it is a question that comes up and and, uh, in his answers he he talks about, you know, how Canada has procured such a wide variety uh, of vaccines. Yesterday he made some interesting comments uh, about how he he, in the past couple of days has been pushing rapid testing in a way that we haven't heard him done uh, do previously or at least not for a while and so he was really gearing up this talk around rapid testing and how important it is uh, and he He made some comments yesterday about, you know, we all want to return to normal. But even once mass vaccinations are in place, uh, we're still going to have to be vigilant. And then in his follow up comments, he referenced rapid testing as something that would be important. So it's all it all is part of the same big question. When can we return to normal? What does normal look like? How do the variants play into this? It's it's a complicated uh, question and answer.
1: It certainly is. All right, Abigail, thanks so much for the update this morning. Thank you. Abigail Beeman is our Global National Ottawa correspondent. So more questions in Ottawa. And this is the thing. I get emails on that very question Every day, people are going, what about the variants? Does the COVID-19 vaccine work on that? Now, the different, the various companies have said that, yes, they believe their vaccines do work on these variants. They're kind of doing, they're going through that testing process right now. And Just an update, too, on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, there is a new manufacturing plant that it, today, as of today, is up and running. I believe it's in Germany, um, and so they've just been waiting to get this thing going. It's just starting production today. That will also start to rapidly increase the amount of vaccine that is produced. And remember, Canada gets its supplies from Europe, from manufacturing sites in Europe. And that had been the site of some delays right over the last few weeks. But we've been hearing from public health officials that you know what, those delays for Pfizer anyway, are now behind us. They're really going to start to ramp up their shipments now. It helps. There's this new plant that goes online today to start manufacturing this vaccine. So we would expect that the month of March is going to be, uh, and even heading towards the end of February, very busy here in BC. As um, we've been told, lots and lots of this Pfizer vaccine is going to show up. And they can start, Dr. Henry said, the mass vaccination program here in this province. But again, more updates to come on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We're investing almost $15 billion for new public transit projects over the next eight years.
1: Now that was big, right? A massive transit funding announcement from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But how much of it will BC get? And most importantly... When will BC get its share? Joining us now with more on this is the Federal Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, Catherine McKenna. Thank you for being back with us. Great to join you, Simi. Let's talk about this fund, because when I heard about this yesterday, my concern was, well, can you really predict something for 2026? That's a long ways into the future right now.
3: Well, we're really building what works. So we have an infrastructure program for public transit. In fact, it's it's actually done a lot in uh, in the province of BC and in Vancouver areas. So the Millennium Extension to Arbutus, the Millennium Expo upgrades. And actually, just last week, a great announcement um, about electrifying, about more electric buses uh, for Vancouver. Uh, that's going to re- significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they're also Canadian-based, so that's a great story, Nova Bus. Um, this new money, so the $15 billion, is really to increase ambition. We're in uh, not only a pandemic, but we have an economic crisis. Uh, We should be looking what are big opportunities that can get going quickly, more ambition. Um, So that's building on our current program. And then there's the permanent public transit announcement. Um, we need to have clear timelines in a place like Greater Vancouver where you have huge transit needs. These are projects that are long-term projects. And I know mayors, I've met the Mayor's Council, and I talk a lot to uh, Mayor Stewart. Um, You need to have longer timelines so you can really plan out uh, properly public transit, also where are people living, um, so you can you know get the most value for your dollars and not lurch. So I think this is really important. I hear uh, just last week I was talking about the Surrey Sky train I know mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest in that UBC extension, some interest. So I think there's some great projects. Also active transportation. Now you have a, a very active community who gets likes getting out on their bikes, getting out walking, and we need to link that to transit. So. It's really about livable cities, but of course restarting our economy at a time where we need to do that and we need to create jobs.
1: Yeah, you mentioned those two projects. So Skytrain out to Langley in Surrey and then Skytrain out to UBC in Vancouver. Those two are like ready to go. They're already, you know, underway in terms of the extensions. When will the federal government pitch in on those two particular projects?
3: Well, I'm not going to make the announcement here. Um, no, Are you yeah, sure? Look, we need we need to, you need to get the business case. I mean, like, look, it's great. We now have the funding available to be more ambitious, uh, which I think is really important. But we need to also be very mindful of taxpayer dollars. I know some work is going into that. Um, when we get the projects, we will, you know, be certainly reviewing them. I think it is critically important that we work with cities uh, to really, you know. Build the cities we want. And this is about having ambition as a country. Um, I think, like, you know, you can say we built the railway, we built the Trans-Canada Highway. Um, now we need to look at significant investments in, in really, you know, a more livable, livable communities. In Vancouver, the number one thing I hear from folks is congestion and climate change. And also inclusive cities where everyone has access to good public transportation, no matter you know where you are. And uh, that is something that this is what it's all
1: about. It's about getting good outcomes. that are going to have a real impact on people's lives, which I think is, is really what is the vision for this. So is your message then to these local leaders, get your business case in order, because are these the kinds of projects then that your government is looking for? 100%.
3: Um, and now they need to work. We need to be working with provinces. So what happens is the you know, the municipalities provide the projects to the province of B.C., and then it ends up in my desk, and then we review them. But it's just, I think we're saying we need ambition. We need it because we need to create jobs. Uh, we need to create opportunities for Canadian companies. Um, we also need it because we need to tackle climate change. And these investments to electrify fleets, Um, to look at active transportation are all critically important pieces uh, of that as well. And then, as I say, the inclusive community speak. So so bring your projects, bring your projects is definitely the message. I know I was speaking to some mayor's um, last night from the Sunshine Coast, there are lots of ideas out there, so I think this is really an opportunity.
1: Yeah, what is the timeline then like for that, for having those projects brought to you? Because we are going to be speaking to the chair of the mayor's council, and I'm sure they would love to know how quickly you can approve something like this if they get that business case into you.
3: Well, I mean, there are steps to go through, so you know, you might have to go through an environmental assessment or different pieces. But, you know, we can't review a project if it doesn't end up on my desk. So I think, and, and we already, it's very important that people know, we actually ha- are making investments right now. This isn't about, like, we're you know, have a gap in money. This is so we can continue doing what we've already been doing, increase ambition, and provide certainty for the long term. Um, but, yes, I, I've encouraged, I've met with the mayor's council. Uh, I think that what I like seeing, what I like in the greater Vancouver area and uh, is that mayors are actually talking. Because we can't have transit that you know, goes to one place, but doesn't link to the broader community. There needs to be a well-thought-out plan if we're going to get the real benefits that everyone wants to see. Um, so I'm very optimistic. I've said this many times that I think Greater Vancouver, uh, there's been a lot of good work being done. Um, I think mean, TransLink is a, is a key partner. I'm very sad to see Kevin Desmond leaving. He was uh, very good at TransLink. Um, but I think folks are really committed, and I think it's really about people.
1: At the end of the day, I got into politics to make a difference in the lives of people, and public transit does exactly that. All right, Minister McKenna, thank you for your time this morning. It's been great. Thanks. Have a good day. That's Catherine McKenna, the Federal Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, talking about that announcement made by Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday in regards to stable, consistent, long-term funding for municipalities for infrastructure and public transit projects. But a good chunk of that money is, you know, destined for the future starting to flow in 2026. But they're still saying yes to projects. And of course, we here in Metro Vancouver know there are two big projects that will make a huge difference to congestion and commuting for a lot of people. And that is if you get that Skytrain extension out to Langley right now, it's going to stop in Fleetwood, but if you can say yes to get it out to Langley, that is huge for people out that way. And in Vancouver, if you can get that, you know, UBC, um, Millennium line extension all the way out there to UBC again, that's not just great for Vancouver. That's it's great for the entire region, right? It really opens up a lot of possibilities there takes cars off the road.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So we're just talking about transit money on the table for municipalities across the country, particularly here in Metro Vancouver, though. We've got two big projects that we're still waiting for, that actual commitment from the federal government, Skytrain to Langley and Skytrain all the way out to UBC. Joining us now for more on this is Jonathan Cote, the Mayor of New Westminster and Chair of the Mayor's Council. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Well, good
4: morning, and thanks for having me on the show.
1: What did you think about that transit announcement yesterday? Yeah, you know, I think
4: it was very welcome news from from the mayor's council. We've been we've been advocating for a number of years for the creation of a, a permanent transit funding, uh, and so uh, certainly we were we're very pleased to to hear the announcement yesterday.
1: But what does it mean for getting these two major projects done in Metro Vancouver?
4: Yeah, well, you know, the devil is, is going to be in the details and we haven't received the, the full details of exactly how the, the program will be run out and how the funding will be received by all of the uh, major cities uh, uh, across Canada. So on First Plus, it it does look positive and it does look like there's going to be uh, new predictable funding uh, available for, for transportation investment. Um, but it's, it's too early to tell exactly how that is going to, to, to translate into project. I would say probably the the most immediate project that looks like a, a good candidate is the the expansion of, of SkyTrain into Surrey and, and Langley, uh, given that's that's the project uh, you know first first in, in in the queue right now there. So I think that's that's where we'll probably initially be focusing our attention.
1: Right, because that would be huge. So how how close would you say that is? Because SkyTrain to Fleetwood is is pretty well along here, right?
4: It is, and uh, and we also have a, a, a provincial government that, in the last provincial election, uh, made some really strong commitments to towards uh, SkyTrain to Fleetwood and and to Langby as well too. So the stars do seem to be aligning between the provincial, federal government, and and obviously the mayor's council is uh, is supportive of moving that project forward as part of our our mayor's ten year plan. So uh, the stars do seem to be aligning, but until we get the final details on the funding, uh, you know can't can't quite make an announcement yet on on the. Uh, on the groundbreaking uh, uh on the construction of that project but I think we we've definitely gotten one step closer.
1: Okay, yeah. So how how what's the timeline like do you think for that? Cuz it feels like we've been talking about these projects forever, doesn't it?
4: it? It it does and and transportation projects uh you know, uh do take a long time to plan and ultimately build uh there you know, I think if we we look at our history, we we talked about the Evergreen line for for many decades. Oh, yeah.
1: And, no kidding. And, and
4: and we don't want to be in that same position with uh with the SkyTrain to Surrey, but but they, but they do take their time, and, and unfortunately, COVID COVID nineteen did set us back uh, uh, last year. We had to refocus our, our attention. But I'm hoping 2021 we're able to get back on track, and it does look like we've got the partnerships provincially and federally to be able to do that.
1: So, what is a the TransLink wish list or the Mayor's Council wish list for transportation projects in Metro Vancouver right now?
4: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think the the big, the big project right now is uh, is the Surrey SkyTrain line. Uh, we do know construction is also going to start on the Broadway corridor to Arbutus, but another really big project that uh, isn't isn't fully funded that uh, that this announcement may help us with is our, our low carbon fleet strategy. Uh, the mayor's council has has an ambitious plan to uh, to shift our, our bus technology to to electric buses uh, to help meet our our greenhouse gas uh, targets, and uh, and it appears that this federal announcement may may also be able to help us be able to achieve those those targets as well.
1: Right. So not as kind of big and sexy as the big visible ones, right? But there's lots of little things it sounds like this funding will also help out with.
4: Exactly. I think there's lots of opportunities. You know, I think the the mayors in the mayor's ten-year plan, we often focus on the you know the big exciting sky train project, and those are are critically important to the region. But there's a whole host of uh, of, of public transit projects that that really affect all of the municipalities in, in in the region. And and certainly, you know, I think the region is behind us uh, achieving our, our targets and our low carbon fleet strategy. So, uh you know, I think this is definitely welcome news, and we're looking forward to to getting down to the details and and turning these. Uh, uh you know these these announcements into into real projects
1: you you mentioned how tough uh the pandemic had been obviously on you know transit and transportation and translink uh, is that getting better the financial picture for translink
4: yeah so we're we're, we're still in the pandemic and uh and in an environment with with health restrictions, and uh, and our transit ridership is still half of what it was this time uh, this time last year. So uh, we're not out of the woods uh, woods yet. Uh, you know, I think in in the fall there was some announcements of federal and provincial uh, agreements uh, that uh, that essentially allowed TransLink to to maintain service levels even though our transit ridership was down, and and that uh, and that program continues into 2021. We're optimistic ridership is going to bounce back this year, particularly as we, fingers crossed, to hopefully move out of COVID COVID-19. But we do recognize we, we're going to have to, it's not going to happen overnight and, uh, and there will be some continued financial challenges into the future.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning.
4: No, thanks for having me on the show.
1: That's Jonathan Coté, the mayor of New Westminster, chair of the mayor's council, responding to the announcement yesterday from Prime Minister Trudeau, the one that we just talked to Catherine McKenna about, and that is for long-term, more stable funding uh, for infrastructure projects, transit projects right across the country, and that goes to municipalities. The problem is it's long-term, uh, which is good, right, in many regards, but also when you're saying something's going to start in 2026 and you're the government in power right now, i become very sceptical Because I think that's a long ways away. Can you commit something that a future government might have to change if some other financial difficulty comes along? And there was no real commitment in there as of now for the two big projects that Metro Vancouver has right up at the top of their wish list. Number one, as Jonathan Cote said, is the Surrey SkyTrain extension all the way out to Langley. Can you imagine how great would that be? And then, again, the one heading out to UBC right now stops at Arbutus. They want to extend it all the way out to UBC. So still waiting for the final word on that. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been asked over and over to please not travel somewhere this weekend. We're so close, right, to getting our mass vaccination program underway, close to flattening the curve of COVID-19. And then we have these highly contagious variants lurking out there. So just please don't risk it. And yet people will ignore that. We know that. I myself have been disheartened to hear that someone I know, someone I'm relatively close to is going away this weekend, skiing no less, to the interior. And I don't understand the thought process behind that. How does that happen? And the ski resorts themselves are concerned about this, clearly, because they've had problems, right? Outbreak at Whistler, uh, outbreak at Big White. We're going to get an update now on what is happening there. Joining us is Michael J. Ballingall, the Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. Thanks for being back with us.
2: While we are listening to Mark in the weather forecast, it's like summer down in the lower mainland. Minus one, minus 24 out in the village here where I'm talking to you from today. Minus 33 at the top of the mountain, so... We've got that Arctic high right over the top of the mountain.
1: Oh my goodness, that sounds freezing. I, given that, then, is it even too cold for people to ski?
2: 2,100 people from the local area, from the central Okanagan, went skiing yesterday. And, you know, the weekend, we'll have six to 7,000 people here from the local Okanagan that will visit the resort and the uh, season's pass holders. It's going to get warm on Saturday and Sunday, so it is going to warm up to minus four, but Yeah, this has been the coldest week of the year, and traditionally we get one week like this every year.
1: Michael, are you worried, though, about this weekend, given that it is Family Day weekend? Are you worried about an influx of people coming in?
2: Um, Not really here at Big White. I mean, we, we, we manage about 500 doors for private citizens. We don't have any corporate hotels or big hotel chains. And way back in December, you know, we started to cancel reservations we run a company that is also a booking agency, so we know where you're coming from. And we've canceled all those reservations from Ontario, Alberta, um, Manitoba, and Vancouver, Lower Mainland. That, that's our, our, our biggest growth market uh, is Vancouver. It's always been our biggest market. But it, it's, it's really the private operators, the VRBOs, the Airbnbs, people that own accommodation that might not live in the local area. They're looking for money to pay their mortgages and and, and their own personal bills. So we know some of that is taking place, but it it is not in large numbers. I mean, the Silver Star, the mayor of of, of Sunkeaks, Al Rain, was reminding people all this week, this is not the time to travel. Science says that. And and B.C. has been relatively very, very good. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've had a travel restriction in place since early December. We missed Christmas. We missed all those January weekends. This is our second busiest weekend of the year traditionally and, and, and we're gonna miss out on the big numbers, but we we get it. We are just trying to do our part right to make sure that everybody stays safe.
1: So you're saying that even Sun Peaks and Silver Star and and Big White are saying, listen, we we'd love to have you just not right now.
2: Every every lift company is is, is out there telling the operators of the accommodation sectors To do the right thing and and the majority of them are the the like your friend that's traveling it, it is very few and far between we we've we've canceled uh ski groups out of ontario that that really wanted to come they were booked on the air and and we just simply said no this is not the right time to take this order into your own hands and if we can influence you by stopping the reservation, by stopping you coming, we don't even run airport shuttles anymore. There's, really? There's, the only way that you can get the big white from, from the airport is to get in a taxi cab. You've got to make the decisions yourself. We're not going to help you make the decisions. We're canceling your reservation. Well, Michael, that's impressive. And other impressive. resorts are doing the same thing.
1: That's impressive then. so Because like, we know when we talked to you before, there was a problem, right? There was an outbreak there. What kind of an impact did that have?
2: Well, the cluster really started back in in, in November when 1,000 kids from around Canada arrived at the resort and someone brought COVID-19 in their back pocket. And I think that the worst week we had back in November was, was 40 cases. And we've really been managing that ever since. I mean, I think it's 235 in all total. We have one person still in isolation, and that person comes out of isolation on Saturday. So we had testing again yesterday. There might be a few cases from that testing, but the, the average per week has been four or five since, you know, just after the Christmas spike. So, you know, it, it, it is it is a hard thing to do. You, you Listening to the to the interior health experts, you've got to get these kids out of the group housing, get them into isolation, get them into accommodation for 14 days where they're by themselves. They don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, think of the young person just they, they want to hang out with their friends. COVID-19 hangs out with your friends, too. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the right things. And I think every resort is. You know, we, we feel sorry for what's happening at Whistler, but we know they're working hard to get it under control because they're dealing with the same personalities, people yeah. under the age of 30 that like to hang out together.
1: That is so true. So what kind of response have you gotten, Michael? Like it, You can't be very popular, right, for having to put those ideas out there. Have you gotten any pushback?
2: Lots of pushback. I mean, you know, did I had a mother on the phone the other day from the lower mainland, that you know, she promised the kids the ski holiday, and and I, I just said, you know, it, did you promise the kids that they, they might get sick too? I mean, the chance is there. It's real. It, it lives in our backyard. It, it's out there. In interior health, now we had another fifty plus cases yesterday. We don't know where COVID is, but you got to just assume that that person that could be standing beside you, or could be dining beside you, or could be hanging out in the coffee shop beside you, might have it. Why take that chance with your family? So uh, eventually, we t- sort of talked her off the cliff because the disappointing news was going to be to the kids, and nobody yeah. wants to disappoint kids. But I think the young people really are starting to understand it. Let's find another activity in your own area. You know, there, there, there's an outdoor skating rink somewhere. Go for that walk. It, it's it's now the time to help shrink. I mean, Doctor Bonnie, every day the poor the poor woman. Just no repeats repeat, yeah. repeat. But we're starting to get there. We're, 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 we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Vaccine, jab me in the shoulder. I'm in line. But, uh, now's, <laughs> yes. you know, now's, now's just the time to stay local. And, you know what? And,
1: You've done an amazing job then in getting that message out there, Michael, and I hope people are listening. But listen, best of luck and we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. That's Michael J. Ballingall, is the senior vice president at Big White Ski Resort, Big White, Sun Peaks, Silver Star. The message from the interior ski resorts is all the same. They love your business, just not right now. They don't want you to come. They've taken the extraordinary steps at Big White, even as you heard Michael saying there, to cancel people's out of town reservations, to cancel people who were trying to come and book there from Ontario, from Alberta, from other from you know the Lower Mainland. They don't want people there right now. They want to get this thing under control. And yet there are still people who are going to travel this weekend. Do you think people are listening or are people still traveling? Do you think people are still going to go out there and travel this weekend? I'm going to open up the phone calls on this because I'm sure you out there know somebody like I know somebody who is still stubbornly not going to listen and still travel. No matter how much you try to talk to them and tell them it's the wrong thing to do. So do you know somebody like that too?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We know that Super Bowl last weekend was a big concern uh, for health officials as well. They wanted to make sure that the rules were being followed, particularly at bars and restaurants. So, no surprise that WorkSafe BC did a big enforcement blitz over the weekend to make sure that the rules were being followed. They found about three dozen bars and pubs violating the COVID nineteen rules. Uh, so, you know, a sizable number. If you just look at it with the thirty, you know, two. But overall, when you consider the hundreds and hundreds of bars and restaurants out there, uh, is that, you know, kind of putting it into perspective. So with that, let's talk about what they have found. Ian Totsonson joins us now, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Hey, Simi, how are you? I am good, thank you. Okay, so 32, you know, bars and restaurants caught violating the rules. Are you surprised by that number?
5: No, actually, and if you look at the, the I haven't seen all the details, but if you look at it, there are things like, uh, hand sanitizers were not perhaps in a convenient location or a little bit of, you know, people got a bit too close. But there wasn't, I, when, I, when I saw it, went, yeah, it's not like, it's crazy, when cra-, you know, we completely ignored all the health orders and just you know went nuts. I think these are just fine-tuning things, and I was really happy to see that. I was just talking to Daniel Frankel at uh, Tap and Barrel. He said they had inspectors in all his restaurants, uh, you know, uh, sometimes two at a time. Uh, all weekend, so and I was glad to see that because it really, you know, it really keeps a discipline in the process. So no, I wasn't surprised. I thought it was a not a, a, a pretty good number considering what you just said, uh, Simi. That, that you know, the thousands of businesses that were operating on on uh, Super Bowl Sunday.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought too. Does it also help to remind um, in these businesses that listen, you got to stay on your toes here?
5: Well it does it does a couple of things. Uh, it, it it keeps that pressure on and I'm you know, you probably said this before, I'm so proud of what the industry's done. But it also it also helps with the the, the, the um, our consuming public see it and they go, oh, that's great. And we're so happy and so are we that we're being audited and challenged and, and made better all the time because it's you know, it's a whole consumer confidence piece for us as we start to slowly come out of this and I think there's a little bit of optimism that's starting to develop in the sector, um, you know, the spring is coming, the vaccinations will start to take effect, and we've got through some terrible times. So if we can keep this variant in control, then it's great. The one thing that we did see, uh, which was, you know, shows the hypersensitivity and, uh, well, maybe better described as how well the public listens, is when the premier said, stay home. On on the Thursday, They said, you know what, just stay home. Don't even go out. And I sort of hit my head. I went, oh, here we go again but so we saw some cancellations of people that had reserved to go to the Super Bowl they canceled but then it was made up in part by takeout and delivery and there is then it freed up some room for for people to walk in so but it's really interesting you know when the premier or dr henry says something we just listen and we we obey that's and good, again though. it is really good you know in a pandemic we need to be that disciplined so that, that's you know so it's, it's working it's working slowly
1: That's the thing I was wondering, too. I know people are tired. I know it's been a long time, and they feel like they keep hearing the same message. But there's a reason why here in BC, things are more open than other provinces, right?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a few provinces now that um, uh, their restaurants in-store dining are open, but we've never been shut. And I think that says a lot about the industry and a lot about the way we've, you know, all of us, uh, have have followed Dr. Henry and the discipline we have, so you know it's very proud for us to do that. The devastation in in hospitality would have been incredible had we gone through all these these you know the closing of restaurants like the many other provinces. So that's served us really well, and um, and I and I think you're right, Simi. We continue to set a new bar, a new standard. We we learn more as we go. A way of pulling this off. The spring is coming, so we've got experience now this year about how to operate patios, you know, a lot of these things now are becoming second nature to us as opposed to where we were this time last year when yeah. we were just starting to get ready to close.
1: I wonder about that then. So a lot of this stuff that restaurants and bars have developed uh, during this, that ability to pivot, that ability to deliver, do more takeout, do you think that's going to stay? Do you think the demand there it conti- will continue for something like that, for those services? Yeah, I
5: read a quote the Was but I can't remember, it Was but it was like, the future is an incredible emphasis on your food and even more emphasis on safety for your guests and then it's going to be a multifaceted business it's going to be it's going to be pickup it's going to be takeout it's going to be in-store dining it's going to be creative uh, patio dining it's going to be food kits it's going to be catering uh, there's a, a a place in Vancouver that's fried chicken this weekend and they've been all their uh, fried chicken in the shape of a heart so it's going to be the what? innovation
1: where yeah, is this really
5: cool. place?
1: Like, where can I get it? <laughs> Jukes. Oh, is it I Jukes? Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. So innovative. So um, you know, there's gonna be uh, I saw a model of a restaurant which, you know, if you were to build a restaurant, you'd you'd have a little bit less space uh, or or less people inside dining, but lots of space to keep spaced. You'd have a you'd have takeout windows on one side, you'd have uh pickup and delivery on one side, so it would become multifaceted. So um, I think it's been good for the industry. I think it's, it's shaken us. We're going to come out of this stronger, way more profitable, I think, and way more innovative. Um, you know, I, I think that in some respects, our industry before this was just you know being an industry. It's been challenged now to bring back that entrepreneurial spirit that it has, and in, in recognizing the importance of customer and business. And how important restaurants are to the culture in the neighborhood. So,
6: mm-hmm.
5: um, yeah, I'm getting kind of excited about this. I mean, it's it's early, and and you know, I don't think that we're out of the woods by far. We have a long way to go yet in a, in a relatively short time. Wait, we, you know, well, but, um, we have
1: to get pat St. Patrick's Day.
5: That's right. Yeah, and, and that's I, a big that one. one. That's a big one. I, I think I think they'll probably tone that one down because that's just kind of invites kind of going crazy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, but but no, it's by and large. Um, it's going well, and our coordination with the province is going well. Um, I, you know, I think we're into um, you know, as I, I was looking, reflecting back a year ago, we, we kind of know, <laughs> we kind of know what we're doing now because we didn't a year ago. We were we were up yeah. against it, and we're feeling pretty good about the uh, where we're at.
1: Well, that's good. I like to hear that, Ian. Thank you so much.
5: Thanks, Simi. Always good to talk
1: to you. Yep, take care. That's Ian Tosonson, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Uh, Feeling optimistic, which is so nice to hear in this day and age, uh, for the restaurant and food services industry, saying, like, look at what they've accomplished over the past year. True. It's amazing. uh, That for the most part, you know, out of the hundreds and hundreds of businesses for Super Bowl Sunday, 32 were found to be violating COVID-19 rules. But for the most part, you know, minor stuff that was easily fixed. Not enough hand sanitizer, not enough signage, no posting occupancy limits, things like that. So that's that's good uh, that the business, you know, businesses are keeping it real, keeping it uh, very much on the safe side. And they're feeling optimistic about the future. By the way, on that note, it is Dine Out Vancouver right now. So please support your local businesses. I checked it out. I'm going to be doing it this weekend for sure. Check out their website, DineOutVancouver.com. I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised by what is on offer there. So yeah, have fun with that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's talk about rapid testing in BC. We've heard of this uh, new pilot project that's ongoing up at UBC, where students living in residence there are participating in a program that could be a test run for say, broader rapid testing. The participants in this project are going to be tested about one to three times a week from now until April the 8th. So something like 200 rapid tests every day. A number of industries have been calling on the provincial government to start using more rapid tests, especially the long-term care industry. And joining us to talk more about that is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thanks for being back with us.
6: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you've heard about this pilot project then. Do you wonder, okay, well, why the pilot project there? Like, why not doing it in long-term care?
6: Well, we have had an ongoing pilot uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health in long-term care. Uh, I think uh, five sites uh, currently that are uh, being piloted and you know that has been going on for two months. We haven't seen an official report but we have had some unofficial updates on the pilot and in fact it has uh, tracked down people that are asymptomatic that were on their way to work in long-term care, tested positive on the rapid antigen test and you know likely prevented an outbreak. So uh, the pilot is uh, relatively small, although th- we're encouraged that Fraser Health now is reaching out to us to participate in a pilot in that health authority. So I think we're seeing uh, this breaking open a little bit, Sydney. That's my hope anyway.
1: Okay, because you've been calling for this for a long time. So you you sound like you're feeling a bit optimistic.
6: Yeah, I mean, our November report, which we issued on the impact of COVID-19 on long-term care in the first wave, recommended use of rapid testing uh, as a screening protocol for uh, workers and visitors in long-term care as a way of preventing, you know, a, a really bad uh, impact of a second wave we all knew was coming. Well, that the testing didn't happen, and the second wave really did. And, uh, you know, we saw hundreds of people die, and modeling from Simon Fraser University in conjunction with Safe Care BC uh, showed that had rapid testing been done twice a week, we probably could have prevented half of those deaths in long-term care.
1: So what has the response been like, Terry, when I know you've been advocating for this with the government? Uh, are they listening? Are they acknowledging that, yes, we have to start doing this?
6: Well, some people in government are. Certainly the seniors advocate has been a proponent of, uh, of rapid testing and long-term care. Uh, Dr. Henry and uh, the provincial uh, health office has not been as receptive. Their concerns have focused on uh, lower accuracy vis-a-vis the PCR diagnostic test. But screening tests aren't meant to be as accurate as diagnostic tests. They're they're used for screening, not diagnosing. So um, the other objection has been that it's too labor intensive, that you you need medical professionals and you need multiple medical professionals to administer the test. And we find that that 's just not the case in um, in nova scotia for instance they're they 're training truckers to self administer the test, so you know you can you can follow the letter of the law if you like, but uh, physicians, including public health physicians, always have the ability to go off label, which is in fact what they 're doing with the the vaccine administration. So I think all the objections to using these tests are melting away and I'm hoping that um, that there is an impetus in government to uh, use these in a widespread manner.
1: Now, given the level of vaccination that we have in our long-term care homes right now, are, are things getting better?
6: Absolutely. Uh, and you know it, it's a sense of relief for many uh, that are caring for uh, residents of long-term care and assisted living and of course for their families who've been separated from them for uh, a year and are worried about them on on an everyday basis, vaccine has made a huge difference. And, you know, the province has done a very good job rolling out the vaccine. Uh, You know, a few stumbles at the beginning, that's to be expected. But, you know, we're into round two, And it really has, I think, reduced the number of deaths in long-term care. We see outbreaks going down. But that doesn't mean there isn't a role for rapid testing as a screening protocol because we won't get everybody vaccinated, Simi. Not everyone will elect to take the vaccine. And, of course, we have social visitors that um, aren't eligible for the vaccine that also uh, rapid testing would would help uh, to make sure that when they visit, that they're safe.
1: So you're, you see a role then for rapid testing kind of in that gap before we achieve herd immunity, say, at the end of this year?
6: Well, many people see rapid testing as not just the short-term uh, tool in the toolkit, but a long-term one. Uh, we have to have everything available in order to keep this virus uh, from having long-term effects. We know that variants are out there. So I think the, the better we get at uh, testing, the better we will be at containing new waves of the virus or variants of the virus. And, you know, in long-term care, point-of-care testing is the future because you can get point-of-care testing for not just uh, coronavirus, but for influenza and for respiratory syncytial virus. So I think, you know, we should all be getting on this this point-of-care testing uh, momentum, because I think it is one of the keys to keeping our uh, vulnerable uh, people in care safe mm-hmm. in the long term.
1: So how do we do that? How do we all get on board that?
6: Well, we need leadership uh, from the provincial government. You know, the federal government has bought all of these tests and uh, delivered them to the province. We've had an expert panel from Health Canada, which includes Dr. Mel from uh, from the BC uh, government. And, you know, I, I think as I say, I think the tide is turning a little bit. I think people are seeing the utility of these tests and the barriers to their use are coming down. Um, so we just need to get going and, you know, develop the expertise to uh, get it as part of everyone's regular workflow. And uh, we'll look back and think, what was the big deal? We should have been doing this a long time ago.
1: Well, I think people think that now, don't you? <laughs> like, do. When I it comes to rapid do. tests, I feel like people do feel like, why don't why aren't we just using these it's a no-brainer.
6: I mean, more information is always better than less information. And, you know, the old saying, perfection is the enemy of the good, is very true in this case. Because if you get a, a positive uh, test on a, a rapid antigen test, that's not a diagnosis. Then you have it confirmed by a PCR. It's like going for a mammogram. You don't diagnose breast cancer on a mammogram. You go for a biopsy afterwards. So, you know, I, I think we'll, uh, as I say, look back and, and wonder why we didn't implement this sooner. But, um, you know, it's it's better late than never.
1: All right, Terry, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sydney. Terry Lake is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, hopeful that rapid tests will now start to be used more in the long-term care industry. Uh, There is a pilot project that UBC students living in residence are undergoing, too. So is there a role for that? We will see.